Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hey, welcome back, Genies. It is America's family history show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And of course, by genies, we mean genealogists around here. People are tracking their ancestors and finding the stories from the past to enhance your family experience. It's great to have you along. We're going to be talking to a woman named Allie Stalker, and <laughs> she's stirred up a little trouble because there was a 300-year-old mystery in their family. And uh, because of the fact that she's gone to work with DNA and other sources, she has cracked this mystery and changed the direction of the family line. And a lot of people aren't happy about this, but you're going to hear what the story was and how she did it and what some of the reaction is. It's fun stuff. Then later on in the show, we're going to talk to Jamie Kay from Legacy Tree Genealogist, talking about aliases and name changes and how you can deal with some of those things. That is a tough bridge to cross when you run into that, and I've got a few of my own. And then at the back end of the show, Tom Perry, our preservation authority, is going to talk about screen capture software for video so you can save your family history interviews that you do from afar. So you you record them online and then save that video for future use. So there you go. That's all coming up in just a little bit. And don't forget, by the way, to sign up for our weekly Genie newsletter. Absolutely free. Lots of links to great stories you're going to enjoy, past and present shows, and a blog from me every week. And it's absolutely free. Sign up at ExtremeGenes.com. Right now, it's off to Boston to talk to the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. It's the lovely David Allen Lambert. Hello, David. Well, thank you so kindly for such a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sadly, America has lost one of the greatest generation. And for you and I, we've kind of lost a distant cousin, haven't we? Well, that's really true. George H.W. Bush is related to a lot of the population of America. In fact, they're saying that he was probably related to more Americans than any president who came before him. And I would assume since his son went in after him that uh, they were even more related to George W. Bush. But I actually had three interactions with him over time. We're going to talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. But I've actually posted a photo of that on our website, ExtremeGenes.com, and uh, and you can check that out. But it was an amazing opportunity to meet him. Always a gentleman each time. Well, you grew up in Massachusetts. You have to come to my county because we are the birthplace county of four U.S. presidents besides John Adams, John Quincy Adams, John F. Kennedy. And George Herbert Walker Bush was born in Milton, one of my grandmother's hometowns, which is only two towns away from where I live. Yeah, but he was raised in my hometown in Greenwich, Connecticut, so we claim him. All right, David, (laughs) what do we have in our family histoire news? Well, I'll tell you, the great story on Extreme Genes is the one from Maine uh, about the two sisters, Liz Mashad and Sonny Matten. They both were sisters, but didn't know each other for 50 years. Now they're doing the great adventure of genealogy together. Yeah, that's right. They've been traveling the state. And here was one who knew about the other, found out about her name many years ago. And then the other one found her in return. And she knew who she was as soon as she heard the name. So what an amazing thing. They didn't know about their birth father till late in life. And now here in their 50s, these two sisters have finally come together. And no DNA involved in this. Yeah, that's a strange thing. In a lot of cases, you would expect a story like that would be DNA, and that's what I was expecting to read, but no. All right, next I want to talk about the idea of 
you want to be anonymous with your DNA? Well, that's not going to be an option much anymore because with the amount of DNA tests out there and things you can narrow down with public information and exact dates of birth, your matches that you don't know, well, you might be able to figure it out pretty quickly. Yeah, this is the thing. Because there are so many people testing, they're saying that something like 60% of the European population of the United States is implied by all the tests that are out there already. So even if you didn't test, people could figure out who you are through somebody else. Now, why they would be looking for you, that's a whole other question. But it's really an interesting math situation. It is, and it's a little bit more confusing math than I'm used to sitting down with genealogy. It's usually dates from gravestones. Right. But it does make sense. When you do the equations and you throw in all of the possibilities of finding things online about a person, and a lot of times the people not opting in has nothing really to do with them wanting to really be anonymous. Sometimes it's because they got a test and they just want to find their ethnicity. They have no interest in genealogy, which is really hard to believe anybody could say that. <laughs> well, that's really true. I think um, a majority of people who test are just doing it for the ethnicity, and maybe some of them get hooked and wind up joining our lovely little group. Exactly. Well, Friday was the 77th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. And normally we see numerous veterans there. And of course, they're getting up there in years, 97, 98. The oldest one who just died recently was 106. So, you know, figure an average age of almost 100. Yep. And there will be no representation from the men who survived from the USS Arizona. In fact, come to think of it, didn't you have a couple of years back Lou Conter from the USS Arizona on the show? Yeah, he was one of the survivors of the Arizona. We had him on in uh, 2015. So if you follow the podcast, all you have to do is listen to episode 116, and you can hear that interview. That's amazing. Well, in honor of our friends who celebrate Hanukkah, I want to toss out the genealogical blog spotlight on Elizabeth Handler's blog, A Jewish Genealogy Journey, at jewishgenealogyjourney.blogspot.com. And she talks about her adventures in doing Jewish genealogy and gives tips and suggestions in case you're wanting to dabble in your Jewish heritage. All right, well, that's about all I have from Beantown this week. And we'll probably be talking more about our cousin George Herbert Walker Bush. My sympathies to his family and to the nation. We've lost definitely a true American hero. Absolutely. Thanks so much, David. We'll talk to you again next week. And coming up for you next, we're going to talk to a woman from Massachusetts named Allie Stalker. And she is a descendant of the Sanderson family, at least so she thought. But she has solved a 300-year-old mystery that tells her something entirely different. You're going to want to hear the story. You're going to want to hear how she cracked this ancient case and the response to it. You know, genealogy is a lot of fun, and sometimes it can get you in a lot of trouble, even if you're cracking a mystery that happens to be 300 years old, just like my next guest happened to crack. It's uh, Allie Sanderson-Stalker, and she's in Massachusetts. How you doing, Allie? Nice to have you on the show. I'm great, Fish. It's good to be here finally. I've been listening to your show for a long time, and I am glad to be a guest. Well, I appreciate it, and you're more than worthy to be a guest here. I mean, I'm looking at this story, and it's fantastic. First of all, let's start with the story of the Sandersons, and that's your your line of descent. And what has been the tale in that family now since, what, the early 1700s? Yeah, so most of the published genealogies for the last uh, 150 years or so have it that there was a child named Joseph who was born to Bethiah Kemp in 1713, 
And she went to court a year later and claimed that this illegitimate child was the son of Joseph Sanderson of Groton, Massachusetts. In the trial, Joseph said, I am not the father, but the judge said, you're going to take responsibility for this. There's no way to prove otherwise. And so he was a judge to be the father. And the little baby Joseph was named Joseph Sanderson, and it was put down in the records as such. So for the last 300 years, that has been the story. And almost everybody, every online tree you see and every published genealogy you see has said that Joseph Sanderson was the son of Joseph Sanderson Sr. Well, don't you think when books are 150 years old and they're in a library, a distinguished institution, and somebody pulls that book out of the library and says, ah, it's right here, that carries a lot of weight with a lot of people. It sure does. And and there's no reason not to. I mean, at that point, it's really the best possible answer, right? You don't have anything else. That's right. Wait a minute. We live in the 21st century, and you went to work. Yeah, so about 10 years ago, I asked my dad to test his Y-DNA, and his results came back, and they didn't match anybody that was a Sanderson. And I thought, well, that's strange, but we're so early doing this compared to most people that are now getting on the bandwagon. But I thought, well, I'll just wait and see. And slowly more Sandersons were testing, but none of them matched my father. So I started to suspect that maybe he wasn't a Sanderson, and it was a non-paternity event, or what we call an NPE. Yeah. And not, so, the, not the parent expected. <laughs> exactly. Not the parent expected. So I wondered if maybe, you know, I knew about little Joseph in 1713. I thought, wow, I wonder if that might be where the break was. But, you know, it's hard to know. You know, it could happen anywhere. It could sure. have happened two generations from me, you know. So I had to find descendants of Joseph. So baby Joseph got married and had a number of children. So my job was to find those children and see if they matched my, you know, descendants of those sons, right. the boy see if lines. they matched my dad. Yeah, yeah, the boy line. And so you're testing now other descendants of this guy, Joseph, to see if any of them might match your dad. Otherwise, your dad's break might have come somewhere between Joseph, somewhere in the last 300 years. Exactly. Anywhere. Been anywhere, right. So that sounds like it's easy, but wait, I have to find people. I had to go back almost 200 years because my dad's line was like the only one of the Sandersons up until 1770s that had any male left. So then I had to go back and then go forward, which is called descendancy research, and find living people. So I wrote a few letters, and most of the guys wrote back and said, not interested. This is weird. Who are you? Yeah. (laughs) But one guy was kind of nice, and he wrote back, and he's like, you know, it's interesting. And then I thought, well, maybe I should start a Facebook group because I can just get Sandersons to join. And so I did it, and, and I thought, well, we'll get this guy to join and maybe some other research I've been working with, including my friend and cousin, Ethel Hageman, who helped research with me. And we thought we might get four or five members. Just an FYI, right now we are over 170 members. Oh, wow. <laughs> of researchers, you know, active yeah. researchers. Yeah. And we were just sort of getting along on the Facebook group, and the fellow that said he was interested by email was getting into it. And he's like, you know, I, I may test. And I said, well, is there something we can bribe you with? And he said, well, I kind of like cheesecake. That's so I it? Thought, that's it. I said, if wow. you test, you'll get a cheesecake in the mail. <laughs> He's in Michigan. So he tested, and sure enough, he matched my father. 
Wow. So that was great. And then Ethel got her nephew to test, and she was a descendant of another son of Joseph. So we had a different line of Joseph's sons, yep. and she matched us. So all of a okay. sudden, we have a little clump yep. of E. haplogroup Sandersons. And I should say that the real Sandersons are our haplogroup. Okay. okay. So we had a little group, and we thought, well, we now know that it's us, and we're the children of little baby Joseph, born right. 1713 to Bethiah. The illegitimate so, child. The illegitimate yep. child. So we figured out we were not Sanderson's. Wow. And, and so then so. you went on to find descendants of the father's other male children to see if they matched? So, yes, Joseph Sanderson Sr., the, the accused father, right? Right, yeah. We went and found some of his descendants, and they were our haplogroup. So they matched the Sandersons that came over, you know, and the, okay. you know, the Sandersons that were the original Sandersons in Boston and, and Watertown. So we had these two distinct groups. We knew the break happened at 1713 with Bethiah's little baby Joseph. But the question was, well, then who is the father? Yeah. Can we figure that out? So I was talking to Ethel on the phone, and I'm looking at the matches in Family Tree DNA, the Y-DNA matches, and I'm like, gosh, you know, it's just so weird. There's just our little group, and then there's these Germanic names that match us that mean nothing. So those names were things like Hesse and Strobach and Lakin. And, I, you know, I was thinking Lakin sounds sort of Swedish. There's a, the Swedish yeah. Lakin Lakin's name. Right. So I'm thinking, that's all weird. I don't know who these people are. They don't match us. And Ethel screams over the phone, Lakin, what do you mean? There are Lakins in Groton. I'm like, what? What? Lakin? Lakin's an English name? She said, yes, because she had done a lot of Groton research in the past. She said, there are Lakins in Groton. She's seen them in the records. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Wow. We know it's a Lakin. He's there somewhere. He's there somewhere. So we ended up doing the same thing, creating a Facebook group called Lakin Genealogy <laughs> and going right back onto those message boards and finding all the Lakins. Wherever we could find people that were researching Lakin, we invited them to the group. And we quickly got a few people. One was a gal who said, I've got a brother. You know, maybe he could test. And he was a descendant of a Groton Lakin. Wow. So we got him to test. No cheesecake needed. And <laughs> guess what? A perfect match. Yep. He matched all of us little E-group Sandersons. So we found out we were Lakins after wow. you know, 300 years, the Sandersons a lot of Sandersons, because there are not as many, as far as we can tell over the last three years of researching, there's more of us fake Sandersons than there are the, the real, real Sandersons spread out throughout the U.S. So wow. it really has affected a lot of Sandersons. Yeah, America. but you've gone and you've had this published now in American yep. Ancestors, which yep. is from the New England Historic Genealogical Society. And, and I'm hearing that you're getting a little grief back. People don't like losing their ancestors like this. Well... Uh, yeah, so a couple older members of our group wrote me and said, please don't tell my wife. I've been so proud to be a Sanderson, <laughs> thinking I was related to the Sandersons, like Robert Sanderson was a silversmith. And so unfortunately, no, we're not. I always tell everybody we are legally Sanderson yes. because a court, 
has declared us so. So if another Sanderson silver coddle cup goes up for auction for a million dollars like the previous one, maybe we'll get a piece of it. A piece of the action. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Well, the but other we, thing is, yeah. if the court actually made this summation, couldn't you go in there and now present the evidence and have them overturn that decision, even though it was 300 years ago? What an interesting idea. So, yeah, I guess I, I hadn't really thought of that. I think that's quite an interesting idea. I'll have to look into that and see if there's a method to overturn such a such an incorrect ruling. Well, this is amazing, though, that you would actually do this, because, I mean, a 300-year-old mystery is not something easily cracked, Jamie, and only through Y-DNA could it be done. And right. with the absolute intestinal fortitude of somebody like yourself to go out and line up the people to test and spend all that money to do the tests and then do the analysis and figure it out. Have you figured out which Lakin, by the way, was the father? So, no, there were a number of Lakin men that were sort of single at the time of Bethia's impregnation. Six were married, but two brothers, William and James, James was seven years younger than Bethia, and William was three years younger. We, we think it possibly could have been William. And William and James, uh, their father was in the same garrison with Bethia's parents. Groton was a, a frontier town. Yeah. Indian attacks, all that kind of stuff in the early 1700s. So they all knew each other. They all lived in the same yeah. house for a while, so we know they knew each other. What's interesting is that a few months before Bethia's trial, William was named the father of the illegitimate son of Anna Blanchard. So he might have been a little promiscuous. You know, it's a yeah, very, he very got high around. likelihood. He got around. <laughs> <laughs> but one nice thing about the Lakins is only one man is the progenitor of all the Lakins in Groton, and his name is William Lakin, and he was from Ruddington, Nottinghamshire, England. So we do know that we descend from William Lakin. So you know the line, you just don't know the name of the son that was in the middle. Wow. What a story. That's fantastic sleuthing. Well done. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She's Allie Sanderson Lakin Stocker from Massachusetts, (laughs) a sleuth extraordinaire breaking a 300-year-old mystery and causing all kinds of trouble among the Sanderson descendants. Well done, Allie. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And coming up next, we are going to talk to a researcher with Legacy Tree Genealogists. She is Jamie Kay. She's going to be talking about aliases and name changes and how you might pursue some of those. And she's got some stories herself. Hey, welcome to Extreme Genes, Jamie. Thank you much. It's good to be here. You know, I've got a couple of these in my lines, including a second great-grandfather by the name of Waldrion who came over from London to New York City in the 1830s. He spelled it like Waldron with an E-A thrown in there. And with E-A or without E-A, I can't find him anywhere in any records over in uh, England. In fact, there's not a single Waldron in the history of England that that I've been able to find in records over there. And he came over to America, and in the directory we see at least two, maybe three, first name changes as well. What might be happening here? Oh, there are a variety of reasons people change their names. Most common is to escape a little bit of a shadowy past. Ooh. My my own great-great-grandfather from Scotland was married and had all his children with the name John Ferguson. Then we find that his wife applies for poor relief because her husband has been put in jail. And next thing we know, they are in Glasgow, away from this little tiny village where they lived and raised their children, with the surname Scott. And so my maiden name is Scott, and we're still trying to figure that one out. 
<laughs> where that name came from. Fascinating. Yes. There was a situation I dealt with uh, an ancestor who was in the War of 1812 as a substitute for another soldier. He, I guess, was paid off to do this, and he actually went by the other soldier's name during the war. And then later, after the war, he applied for a pension for his service, but there's no record of him because he went by the other name. That is absolutely correct. Because he was substituting, he would have been paid with that soldier's name and forfeited any pension because he didn't serve under his own self. Yeah, it's tough to approve those things, you know? Yes. What are the other circumstances that you've run across, and then how do we solve these things? Well, the only way to really pound through them is to look at absolutely every record you can find that might be the right person. A case that I just researched was the family of William Thomas Rowe. The client knew that he was born about 1855 in Baltimore from census records. She had his death certificate that he died in 1894 at Washington, D.C., and it gave his address. We were able to find him at that address in several city directories. And also living at that address was a Margaret Rowe, who was a dressmaker. Well, she wasn't always Margaret Rowe. In one of the records, she was Margaret Van Valkenburg. But same address. So I thought, okay, let's see if we can find Margaret Rowe Van Valkenburg. I was finally able to track her down with the spelling R-O-U-E, married to Frank Van Valkenburg. Oh, wow. (laughs) That that had to be one of those victorious days where you throw your arms in the air. I am so glad he didn't choose the name Frank Jones, because Frank Van Valkenburg, I could find. Yeah, (laughs) Frank Jones. Yeah, you could find that also, a lot of them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And not not know which one. Well, Frank Van Valkenburg died just before the turn of the century, and his obituary said Frank Van Valkenburg died suddenly, better known as Frank Rowe. Oh, boy. Like, what in the world? So I was able to get her widow's pension application from the Civil War under the name Frank Van Valkenburg, but also under the name Charles Duane. Oh, no. A third name? Uh, yeah. And we're not even done yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. First of all, what's the story behind Charles Duane? So Charles Duane, according to affidavits in this widow's pension application, was actually born Charles Dwayne McChesney in upstate New York. He was arrested for forgery and was able to escape from prison. He went to Pennsylvania and registered to fight in the Civil War as Frank Van Valkenburg. He deserted. He went to Washington, D.C. and married Margaret Rowe. And a year or so later, he told her he needed to leave town And the next she heard, he was taken prisoner of war fighting for Connecticut in the Civil War. But he was going by the name Charles Duane. (laughs) Wow. I mean, this has got to be like an ongoing research project for you, right? To sort it out because it's four people in one. It was a very long project, but the key to it really was that Civil War widow's pension application. Yeah, those are so important, aren't they? You know, I mean, very, very valuable for so many things. Well, and it gave Margaret Schinner's first husband's name. Her first husband was John Rowe. He died at sea in August 1857. 
and the second child of the couple was born a few months later. So when somebody runs across a, a, a name change or an alias, first of all, what are some of the causes? And then it seems to me there should be a process that is unique to the case. Exactly. And it would be very easy to say, well, here's a checklist of things to do yeah. and you will have your answer. But as we all know, genealogy does not work that way. Nope. So I would say the first thing to do was to be sure you have absolutely every single record you can possibly find about any person that is even sort of related. Margaret Schinner, that was her maiden name, and she was on the 1860 census with these two row children. She went back and lived with her dad. Her mom had just passed. Huh. So her name is Schinner and Roe and Van Valkenburg, and her second husband's alias, four different names. So to just compare and say, okay, now who was Frank Roe? Who could he possibly be? Oh, here's this obituary that says <laughs> Frank Van Valkenburg, better known as Frank Roe. Wow. Okay, we've got that sorted out. Oh, well, here's a Civil War pension application. Let's see what that says. And that was gold. It, it sure sounds like it. You know, I think about this Waldrian thing, and he was in theater. He named his son Acastus, which I learned was was a character from Plato's Jason and the Argonauts. So I'm thinking, oh okay, my. he's a very well-read man, and he worked at, at the old Bowery Theater in New York, and he came over, you know, as kind of a lower or middle-class kind of guy to work there. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking the Waldrian thing was to improve his name in the theater world. But that's just an assumption. You you know, you may have hit it right on the head. Maybe he's running from something in his past. Who would know? Well, and theater types, especially in England, were not well regarded. Yep. Even those in Shakespeare's day were really looked down upon. So to leave behind a bit of a sordid past would not have been unusual for an actor. He may have also wanted just a fancy name. Look at all the people in our entertainment industry. Yeah, right. That change <laughs> names. You just pull a, a name out of a hat, and that's who you are from then on out. Going back to my Ferguson great-great-grandfather, apparently when great-grandpa was ready to leave, his dad pulled him aside and said, well, your right name is not Scott. It's Ferguson or Fram. It's like, What? Well, my brother took DNA tests, and the matches are Fram's. And you hit it on the head right there. The key is often DNA. And if you get somebody to do the Y-DNA test, the male-to-male-to-male -male -male line test, you can often uncover what that name should have been, as I've done with my Waldrian. Jamie, it's been great chatting with you, and I appreciate all the insight. I mean, you've got some great ideas here and some great thoughts and some great stories. Unbelievable stuff. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you. And coming up next, it's time to talk preservation with Mr. Tom Perry from TMCPlace.com. He is our preservation authority. We're going to talk about screen recording software that can really help you with those interviews. And this is Extreme Genes, America's family history show. And uh, Tom, you know, this is the time of year where a lot of family interviews get done. Everybody gathers and, and we sit in rooms and, and maybe break out the phones or whatever camera you might want to use to get some great interviews with the old folks in particular, and maybe even the young folks, that's a lot of fun too. But what happens when people are far away? I know that you have some ideas on this. Oh, exactly. In fact, it doesn't matter whether 
they're the man in the moon or they're living in Dulcem, Alabama. There's no borders anymore. You can talk to anybody live. We use everything from Snapchat. We use Facebook. We use YouTube. Of course, we use Skype all the time. And it's great. You can actually set up interviews with mom and dad, grandma and grandpa. And one thing that's really important about these when you do them, you want to make sure you get a good screen capture software because there might be something unique said. Well, I, you know, I've never done that before. I've had other people do it with me. We've done something online and they say, oh, look, here's the video. And I thought, well, I, I don't know how they captured that. I've never been involved in that. And my life has basically been involved with audio. So if you were to make a recommendation about what kind of screen recorder software to use, what would you recommend? Well, one that's really fun that I really like, and you can, you'll can you never forget the name. It's called Ice Cream. <laughs> so okay. it's an easy one to remember. So just go to icecreamapps.com. And they have it for Windows 10, they have it for Mac OS, and it's really easy to use. And some of the cool things about it, for instance, if you've got some film that you've transferred that, you know, back from the 60s, 70s, whenever, you can go in and you can actually capture part of the screen because you're playing it on your DVD inside your laptop or your computer until you record it. And then you can actually go back and with the drawing tools they have, you can draw like an arrow. Oh, this is Martha on the float. This is Jesse on the float. This is so-and-so. Or this is the house we used to live in. As you're driving past different things, you can put these titles and things in it, kind of make a wow. project history. That sounds really fun. So one thing you might want to do on it, which this program allows you to do, is you can put like a logo or what we call a watermark on it. A lot of times if you're watching the news, you'll see the news logo in right. kind of transparent, but enough so that you can see it. Right. And you can make those too. Yes, but it makes it nice. So if you want to share it, like YouTube's a great way to share stuff. Like my son does what's called Falcon 87. He plays these games, does different video things and posts them. So everybody in the family or his friends can go and see the videos and then they add different things to it. But the neatest thing is with the drawing panel, you can do all kinds of cool stuff. And it's just, it's endless what your imagination can come up with to use these tools. All right. So we've got ice cream. Give us some more. Okay, one of the other programs that is really cool out there, and the best thing to do is try them all out. A lot of them will let you try it free for three or four days, see which one fits you best, and then that's what you're going to want to go with. There's ones that are called Shampoo. There's one that's called Bandy Camp. If you have the Adobe Kit, it's already built into your stuff. There's Screenshot-O-Matic. But you can just go to Google and type in screen capture devices, read the different things, read the reports, spend a little bit of time, and read why somebody said they liked or they didn't like it. And they might have not liked it for something that you don't care about. They might have really liked it for something you do care about. So find out what works with you. But I love ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> well, we all do. But I, I'm not sure we're talking the same thing here, Tom. But, yeah, I really do like exactly. the idea that not only could you interview people, but you can do it any time of year from anywhere in the world and use this screen recorder software to capture those interviews and create them into something memorable and useful, too, especially long after people are gone. Oh, absolutely. In fact, if you have people in your family that are in the military, this is awesome. All right. What else, Tom? We're going to talk a little bit more about some programs that you can actually take somebody that sent you something and turn it into something you can give somebody that's technically challenged. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't do anything, but they can't do much, right? Right. You know, like my mother, love her to death. She still writes handwritten letters, and I just absolutely love those. But I have tried several computers with her. I got a computer made for a computer for dummies, and she just she doesn't want to deal with it. She doesn't want to work with it. So what we can do with programs like Wondershare, which we've talked about a lot, 
the video that you've taken with a screen capture device or things that you've shot with old film in the old days, whatever, and you can go and convert these with Wondershare and turn them into programs that you can play on your DVD player, you can burn discs, you can play them on your iPhone or any kind of an Android device, you can play them on tablets, and this way you can take your tablet over and show it to them, or if they can handle something, like say they can play a DVD player, no problem, it also gives you the ability to take these, edit them, trim them down, put what you want on the disc, then take it over to Grandma's house and play it for her. You know, this is really true, and you suggested Wondershare several years ago, and I know they've had several iterations since then, but what I really love about it, it's so easy to really just edit out the good stuff and, and maybe put it all together. And I had this video of my kids meeting Muhammad Ali years ago, back in, uh, what was it, like 1998, I think it was. And uh, they actually did a, a little performance for him and made him laugh and slap his leg and called him over and gave them each a kiss. But there was a lot of stuff before and after that that was just pretty much irrelevant. And to be able to take that and throw it onto Wondershare and edit out before and after and just keep the good stuff in the middle, as simple as that, it's a wonderful tool. And as I recall, it only cost me around 50 bucks. Oh, yeah, it's very inexpensive. They have the best customer service of any software I've ever purchased. And it just makes it so convenient because a lot of times people in your family might be in a rest home. And this way you can either send them the DVD. If you visit them, if they're close by, you can take them a DVD or mail them an MP4 and say, hey, Grandma, I know you don't really understand this kind of stuff. When you get it, just click on the icon twice and it'll open up and you won't be in Kansas anymore. Yeah. You know, there are just so many ways to make sure that we preserve these things. The hardest part, I guess, in my mind, Tom, is that this is all digital. And I know physical things uh, deteriorate as well. The digital stuff, we're really kind of in the Wild West right now about how long some things will last or what happens in the cloud. You hope things that are in the cloud are going to stay there for a very, very long time. But at the same time, those things have to be maintained as well, don't they? Oh, absolutely. It's just like politics. You never know for sure what you're getting, no matter what's said. So you want to always have your stuff backed up. You want to have the hard drive. You want to have a thumb drive. You want to have a Blu-ray. You want to have a DVD. You want to have two clouds. You want to have all these different things. So if one of the technologies, there's a hiccup in it, hey, no big deal. I've got it backed up in four other ways. Yep. Plus... People in several different states have copies of my stuff, too. So if I have a natural disaster, I'm still covered. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I posted something on YouTube some time back. And suddenly one day I, I went in and it was gone. Now, I don't know what the YouTube people did with it or how it happened or whatever. But fortunately, I had the original and I was able to repost it. And so now I can watch it whenever I want. All right, Tom, great advice as always. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you again next week. My pleasure. Hey, that is a wrap for this week. Thanks so much to Allie Stalker for coming on and talking about how she cracked open a 300-year-old genealogical problem, which is now causing problems for people who really wanted their lines to be from the original place. you got to hear the story if you missed it. You can catch the podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and ExtremeGenes.com, of course. Thanks also to Jamie Kay, the researcher from Legacy Tree Genealogist, talking about tips for overcoming name changes and alias in your family history. Hey, it happens. I got a couple in my lines. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.